You may be seated. You can turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Kings 6. 1 Kings chapter 6. This is a uh, longer passage, so let's have patience as we read and give attention to God's holy word. And just to preface this for you, what we're going to see in this chapter is a description of the building of the temple. Okay, and it's helpful for us to just have a bit of a picture in our minds as we read this detailed description. So um, picture this, this is what we're going to be reading. So there was a temple courtyard that had an altar in it to offer sacrifices. Then if you can imagine you're standing in a courtyard by an altar, you look, you see a temple, a large building, though not particularly large. The the temple was not a ginormous building. It didn't need to be. It didn't have to do that much. But you see some stairs going up to a little porch, a landing. And then on that porch, there's doors that go in to a large rectangular sanctuary. Um, maybe about the shape of this room, though smaller. And that room is totally gold with three things in it. It has a lampstand, a table with bread on it, and an altar with incense. There's engravings on the walls. It's all gold. This is the holy place. Only the priests are allowed in here. Then you can imagine, you look down this room, and there's another set of stairs going up to a third level. And in there, there's more doors, and that's the most holy place. Not all the priests could go in there, just the high priest once a year. And if you opened those doors, you would see a room that was a perfect square, 30 feet in every dimension. And in that room, there's three things. If you were the high priest that got to go in there, you would see the Ark of the Covenant, which at this time contains one thing in it, the Ten Commandments, God's law. But beside the Ark of the Covenant are two massive statues, 15 feet tall, of cherubim. These are heavenly beings. They have wings and human faces. We don't know what they look like other than that. They're not angels. They're cherubim. Human faces and wings. Two ginormous ones covering the ark. Okay? So this is what we're going to be reading, the construction of this. So if you can keep that image in your mind, it might help you focus as we read first of the outer exterior structure, and then the second half of this chapter is the interior sort of finishings. Okay, so let's try to keep this in our mind as we read. 1 Kings chapter 6, this is God's holy word. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. He made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry. 
so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits from the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also mentioned ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. And he put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doorposts of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. 
On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Amen. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his holy word. One of the benefits we receive of living with someone, sharing a house with someone, is access to that person's presence. It's being with them that is often the good part about them. Um, If you talk to a couple, often that's newly married, one of the main things you'll hear them say when you ask how marriage is, something like, it's it's so great to not have to go home and separate, to just get to be together more, to not have to say goodbye, because they love each other's presence. What someone's presence means is that they are present with you to to do things. They're present to encourage you, to support you, to comfort you, to help you, to make you laugh, to love you. That's what someone's presence means for us. And that's why it's difficult when, say, your spouse goes away on a trip, you miss them because you miss what their presence means, the good that comes from them. That's why the the grief of loss of a loved one that you've shared space with is so grievous a loss. You miss their presence. Everything in your house reminds you of what their presence there meant to you. This idea is the idea that that God desired in his life with man. God created man in the garden that he might dwell with his creation. Remember how we're told how God walked in the cool of the day with Adam. Heaven and earth were meant to be one. Heaven, God's abode, earth, the place of man, were one in the garden. And God and man dwelt together in perfect harmony. Man could enjoy the perfect presence of God, everything that God has to give. But in the fall, in sin, man lost this sort of close access to dwelling with God. It's as if God moved out of the house. God left the garden. And man also was kicked out of the house. Man was put out of the garden, and the garden now guarded by flaming swords and cherubim, standing guard, blocking man from that place where heaven and earth met. Heaven and earth separated. God's presence not with humanity anymore. And you can really think, of the entire story of the Bible is the story of how does this sinful man regain fellowship with the holy God? How does man get that dwelling relationship again where humanity can enjoy the presence of God? One of the biggest steps forward in Old Covenant history was in the construction of the tabernacle. In the book of Exodus, the climax is not the crossing of the Red Sea. The climax is at the end of the book when the tabernacle is constructed and the glory of God descends and God dwells with his people. And for the first time, we see God once again, not in a complete way, dwelling with man. 
This word dwelling is the word used all the time of the tabernacle and the temple in Scripture, God's dwelling place. Theologian Gerhardus Voss speaks of this verb used for the dwelling is the idea of intimate association. To have a close relationship with God. That's what the tabernacle meant to Israel. And the temple is the zenith of this. You see, the tabernacle was movable. It was impermanent. But the temple represents God's permanent dwelling in the place he had chosen, Mount Zion. And so for Israel, the temple means God has established a permanent home with us as his people. We are the only nation in the world that has access to the blessing presence of God. That's what the temple means. And that's what is described here. But the book of Kings was written for people that had already seen the temple. This book is written during the exile. So the people that are reading this building description, like we just read, the first audience is a people who've just seen the temple decimated, thrown down, plundered by the Babylonians, and they've been taken out of the land, away from the presence of God, and they are now in an enemy nation. No more temple, no more presence of God among them. And so why would the writer recording this history go to such detail to tell these exiled Israelites about what the temple was like? Why would he do that? Well, one reason is that, as we said earlier, only priests ever got to see the inside. So the detailed description of the inside gives the average Israelite an idea of what the inside of this amazing structure was like. But more so, the writer is writing this to remind these exiled Israelites of just how glorious God's dwelling place was. Just how beautiful and what the dwelling of God among Israel meant for the people. It's meant to stir up in them holy desires that this might happen again. That they might, by God's mercy, in their repentance, return from exile and rebuild this temple that they might once again have God in their midst. Because God in the midst of the people is the place of blessing. And there's something for us to learn in this as well. What I want for us tonight is I want us to long to know the all-satisfying, glorious presence of God and to see how we do gain that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this theme of the divine dwelling, we'll look at it in three points. It's about how God's presence is gloriously desirable, but yet it's humanly unattainable, but finally graciously restored. First, how God's presence is gloriously desirable. You and I were designed for God. We were made to enjoy God's presence. And our soul, the human soul, is so noble, it's so high, that it cannot be contented with lesser things. And so to try to gain satisfaction for this noble soul by way of the mere pleasures of the flesh in this world, uh, the lusts and pleasures and greeds of this world, they're far too low of enjoyments for what we were designed for because we were designed for God. And as St. Augustine said, therefore our hearts feel a sort of restlessness until they find their rest in God and find complete and utter satisfaction 
and the only one high enough to satisfy the human soul. David said in Psalm 1611 that in God's presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. That is, the one who dwells with God is the one who will delight in God. And so this first point then is that because God's presence is so satisfying, then we should really desire him to dwell with us. If his presence is the only thing that satisfies our soul, we should want God with us. We should want God dwelling with us. And that is what the design and the materials we read communicate to Israel. The design of the temple communicates the preciousness of the presence of God. So first, consider uh, the materials. Think of the stones and cedars, okay? The whole temple is built of solid, big stones and cedars. Cedars a big, strong wood. And if you look into it, these walls are very thick for the size of this structure. This was meant to be a solid, permanent house. A one that people speculate was possibly even designed to withstand great earthquakes. And what this is saying is that Israel ought to desire the permanence of God's dwelling. This temple to be there for ages and generations to come because it represents that God is supposed to be with the people permanently. Um, maybe, you, maybe you remember that time um, or you're coming up to it where you, know, you were trying to go from an apartment to a house. And just that idea of, Ah, uh, we've been kind of transient and permanent. Where will we as a family put down roots? Where will we perhaps buy our first home and just really establish ourselves as this is our place? That's that feeling that Israel has when the temple is being constructed. This is the place of rest. We've arrived in God's promised land and God is here with us. Now we just get to enjoy it. The enemies are conquered. We can enjoy the land. The permanence of the stone and cedar but secondly, consider the gold of the temple. The entire inside of this temple is covered in gold. Like, we know how much just a simple gold ring costs. Imagine covering the entire inside of a building with gold. And this was gold that the people freely gave. It was a free will offering. And what does this gold communicate? It's costly and precious, meaning that God's presence is worth it. God's presence is worth spending ourselves for. This is the most costly material. But gold is also, it's the metal of kings. It's a royal material. And so the gold also communicates that this is God's royal presence. Not only is this temple God's house, but it's also the, the place of his throne. And that's why we have cherubim in the most holy place. Cherubim are not angels. Angels are messengers. Angels go back and forth from God to do his bidding. Cherubim are throne room attendants. They don't leave the presence of God. They're in the presence of God, worshiping and attending upon him. And so Psalm 99 verse 1 says that God sits and reigns enthroned on the cherubim. So this throne room is being pictured to us in the most holy place. Two 15-foot tall cherubim covering the ark containing the law. And who's the only one with the prerogative to make laws? The king. This is God's throne room from which he rules the people. The gold communicates the preciousness of God's presence, but also the royal majesty of God's presence. And if we think of these 
towering cherubim that are in the presence of God, how little do we feel when we consider coming before a holy God in his house, his throne room? The, the, the stone, the gold, but also let's consider the engravings. What did we read repeatedly is engraved all over the place. There's flowers, open flowers. There's gourds, which were probably fruit, palm trees, and more cherubim. This is communicating uh, both physical and spiritual wellness. Open flowers communicate beauty and flourishing. Fruit shows fruitfulness, sustenance. Palm trees communicate vitality and habitability. If you're in the desert and you see a palm tree, that's a really good sign because it means there's probably an oasis where that palm tree is. There's probably water. Palm trees flourish in places that are habitable. And what do these flowers and fruits and palm trees represent to the people of Israel in the presence of God? But they're echoes of Eden, the fruit of the garden, the fruitfulness, life, and vitality. That life that was lost when man was kicked out of the garden is regained and found again in the presence of God. Think, among these images are also engravings of cherubim, those same cherubim that guarded Eden with flaming swords to block people from the presence of God are now with these symbols of the garden where people enter to come back into the presence of God. They enter this heavenly throne room, sinful man with God once again, a regaining of fellowship with God. But on what basis? How did these sinful people come to be back in God's presence? Well, the entire temple is designed around one primary function, sacrifice. Sinful man can only approach God on the basis of sacrifice. Atoning, substitutionary sacrifice. The priest only entered by way of the blood of bulls and goats. The high priest only enters the holy place as it's being sprinkled with blood. Only by way of sacrifice does man regain entrance to God's presence. And so sacrifice is offered continually in the temple. Every morning, every evening, there's lambs whose blood is being spilled, showing Israel that if you want to have God's presence among you, it comes by way of atoning sacrifice because you have sin and your sins need to be forgiven. And so from this centralized place of worship radiates the blessings of God's presence. Even though not every Israelite got to go to the temple, they all received the blessing of God's presence among them. I think maybe a loose um, example that might help here is that if you think of how we get our heat, might be from a nuclear plant or a coal plant or natural gas facility. There's one centralized place that's creating this energy. They're working for it. And yet, we all receive the benefits from it. It goes from those centralized locations and it warms our homes. It allows us to fellowship and enjoy each other in comfort. And in a similar way, the sacrificing, the atoning work going on at the temple allows the whole community to experience the warmth of the presence of God. But all on the basis of sacrifice. And on the basis of sacrifice, it pleases God to dwell among his people. And so this precious blessing of God's presence, the writer of Kings is reminding the exiles of just what they've lost when they've lost the temple. And to stir up in them holy desires to return and rebuild the temple 
that they might once again experience the glory of the divine dwelling in their midst. Because the sad reality here is that the people are exiled. They lost the presence of God through the temple. Why? Because this temple arrangement was actually conditional. It was conditioned on the people's faithfulness to the covenant. Just read Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 27. God lists, here's how I will bless you if you obey me. Here's how I will curse you if you disobey me. There's an interesting insertion in the middle of this whole passage. Take a look with me at verses 11 to 13. Verses 11 to 13 are, are a random um, chunk of words in the midst of this building description. It kind of just sticks out there. And it maybe sticks out too much because it's really important for our understanding. It says in verse 11, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. This is a really wild declaration. God is saying that, telling Solomon that his presence among the people is conditioned on Solomon's obedience as the king. That's a really heavy burden to bear, that the obedience of the king will bring blessing to the people. But yet, we, this is exactly what we see play out in the books of Kings. As goes the king, so goes the people. Righteous king, the people serve God. Wicked king, the people fall away from God. Covenant blessings are conditioned on covenant obedience. And the sad story here is that just as Adam failed to live up to the terms of the covenant and lost the presence of God in the garden, so beginning with Solomon, each one of these kings subsequent to him fail to live faithfully to God and so once again lose the presence of God in access to the temple. The book of Kings is a book of kingly failure. It's chronicling a slow downward slope. And so these exiles reading this, when they read these words God spoke to Solomon, their hearts are breaking, recognizing, why are we here? Why are we exiled? Why are we captives in a foreign land? We had faithless kings. Not even Solomon, who's lauded and glorious. We're going to see soon, his kingship ends in disaster. And king after king after king, the people see, we never had faithful kings. That's why we've lost the presence of God. And so they mourn this loss. And they would hope for a king to make these things right. And isn't that interesting that even in our human society now, people are always looking to human rulers to make everything right. Oh, if these rulers would only enact these laws, only support these legislative ideas, only uh, rule by these ideologies, then all would be well. No. Because our problem is not just external fixes. The problem we experience in this world is the human heart. Even the best of leader, leaders still have a heart that loves sin and is corrupted. So no human leader will ever bring about the perfect blessing of fellowship with God on this earth. No mere man. And recognizing this, Israel is meant to long for a better king, a faithful king. 
I might summarize what we've been saying so far in this way. Uh, The first point is that if we recognize that our hearts are never going to be satisfied with mere worldly and earthly delights, but only in the presence of God, we really therefore ought to desire God's presence. We need to long for it. But secondly, if human peace and enjoyment of the blessing of God's presence is based on the faithfulness of the rulers of the people, we need to long for a greater ruler. And so these are the two, um, the twin stirrings of the heart the exile should be having. And these should be the stirrings of our heart as well. First, we need the divine presence. We need God's divine dwelling among us. And secondly, we need a faithful king. We need a faithful king because it's only under the rule of the faithful king that us as God's people will ever experience the blessing of the divine dwelling. And so once again, we're going to hear this every week, we need the greater than Solomon because the Lord Jesus Christ is both the fulfillment of the temple and he's also the fulfillment of the kingship. Jesus is the greater temple in that he is the dwelling place of God. Pastor Mike spoke the other week about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same word used of the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple of God among his people. And so divine fellowship is no longer accessed by way of these repeated daily sacrifices at the temple, but on the basis of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. As Hebrews 9.26 says that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So this sin problem that's been separating us from God's presence since Eden is done away with in Christ such that, as Paul says in Romans 5.12, that though we were once enemies of God, we're now reconciled to God through the death of Christ. And what does reconciliation mean but restored relationship? Adoption into the family of God. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 14, 23. This is just a crazy promise. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The promise to the believing heart is Father, Son, and Spirit coming and making your heart their home, their dwelling place. Meaning, you always have access to the presence of God. As we heard this morning, we always in Christ have access, bold access to the throne of grace. No longer separated from the most holy place, only the high priest allowed once a year. But the veil's been torn and we have full access, bold access to the presence of God. Because Jesus is the greater temple. But Jesus is also the greater faithful king. Unlike Solomon, Jesus never failed to perfectly keep God's commandments, to faithfully walk in God's statutes, or to fully follow God's rules. And so in his ascended and now exalted state, he faithfully and perfectly rules over his people. And on the basis of Christ's faithfulness, his faithful life, his faithful intercession, God welcomes and accepts and will never leave the people. Because our continuance in fellowship with God is not based on our works anymore and our keeping the covenant like Solomon, but it's based on Christ's perfect covenant keeping and continued intercession on our behalf. So here's what Paul can say in Romans 8.33. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? 
Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. And so we can enjoy abundant life and true human flourishing in the presence of God because Jesus purchased it with his perfect life and atoning death. And he preserves it and protects it in his ascended, kingly, faithful rule. And therefore, on the basis of Christ, we can experience God's presence truly now. We truly can experience the presence of God, though we do not yet fully experience the presence of God. Because even though heaven has come near to earth in Christ, in the indwelling spirit, there's still a separation due to sin. And therefore, we look forward to that final and better day when once again, heaven and earth are made one, like unto the Garden of Eden and God and man dwell together. Let's close with this reading from Revelation 21 that speaks of this glorious reality. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This divine dwelling, God and man, the unity of heaven and earth, we do get to experience now, but only in part. The fullness awaits that day when heaven and earth become one again. We live in anticipation of that day and get to experience just the foretaste of it. And those foretastes should excite our hearts, make us long this year to know God's presence more, to walk by the Spirit in God's presence more, and to live under the rule of the faithful King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Christ, that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we thank you that we can access your presence on the basis of his sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for those blessings of redemption that we get to know the love of a heavenly father, that we get to have peace in our consciences, to know joy in the Holy Spirit and have hope of eternal life. Would we gain this year all those wonderful benefits of your presence, your friendship, your help, your comfort, your support, your strength, your joy, Lord, we have all if we have you. Let us not forget it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.